You're listening to the RUF at Western Carolina University podcast. RUF is a campus ministry that exists to reach students for Christ and to equip them to serve Christ, His church, and His world. For more information, follow us on Instagram. We're at RUFATWCU or look us up online at www.ruf.org. Thanks for listening. Who's heard the Pina Colada song, right? If you like Pina Coladas, everybody. Did you know that that song is about adultery? Um, here's how the lyrics go uh, for the first couple verses. <laughs> yeah, it's like, sorry to break it to you again and disillusion you, but that song's about adultery. Uh, I was tired of my old lady. We'd been together too long, like a worn-out recording of a favorite song. So while she lay there sleeping, I read the paper in bed, and in the personal columns, there was this letter that read, if you like pina coladas. Next verse. I didn't think about my lady. I know that sounds kind of mean, but me and my old lady had fallen into the same old dull routine. So I wrote to the paper, took out a personal ad, and though I'm nobody's poet, I thought it wasn't half bad. Yes, I like pina coladas. Um... Why do I ruin that song for all of you tonight? Um, I think for many of us, uh, that song kind of encapsulates maybe how we feel about our walk with God, uh, especially if you've been a Christian for any length of time. Um, there was once great affection in your heart towards God, but now like, it just feels like routine, and it feels like you're going through the motions. Uh, if that's you tonight, I think our passage uh, from Revelation chapter 2 will be an encouragement and will be a help for us. Uh, I'm going to read it for us, and we'll talk about it for a few minutes. John writes, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, And you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray, and we'll talk about what that means. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth that it reveals to us about who you are, who we are, and what you've done to bring us back to yourself. As we look at this passage tonight, this little mini letter to the church at Ephesus, I pray that you would encourage us and rekindle our love for you. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, So last week we talked about Revelation in general, kind of introduced the book uh, and we really just talked about like the first five words of the book, right? The revelation of Jesus Christ. And we said that revelation is a book that's meant to reveal, right? It's the word itself, right? Revealation, revelation. Uh, it's not meant to like hide things and to cover things up, uh, but it's meant to pull back the curtain so that we see what's really going on in the world. It's opening our eyes to see what God is up to as we wait for Christ to return. And what's revealed primarily is Jesus himself. Right Over and over, we'll see pictures of Jesus in the book of Revelation. Him suffering and dying for us, ruling and reigning over us, uh, conquering evil, uh, dealing out justice on wickedness and more. 
And so we said if we read Revelation rightly, we're not going to try and like decipher secret codes or identify dates and match them up with like historical events. We're going to look for Jesus. And we said that this is a very visual book. Uh, it's not a, it is a letter, but it's not like other letters in the Bible. It is history, but it's not like other historical books in the Bible. It's very visual, right? Pictures and images. John, in verse 11 of chapter 1, gets the command, write what you see in a book. So it's not like, here's this message, and I want you to communicate to them or tell what happened. No, it's look around and write what you see. And that leads us to a question. If if Revelation is John looking around at this vision that God gives him and writing down what he sees, how do you do that? Right? Like, how do you look at something fantastic and then write down what you saw? Right? In other words, how is this book organized? Like, what structure does Revelation have? I think when you're starting to read a new book of the Bible, it's helpful to ask that question um, so that you can make sense of the parts because you understand the whole So before we dive into this little part tonight, I want to just spend a few minutes talking about kind of the overall way that Revelation is structured. Um, If you've watched a football game or been to a football game, especially one that's televised, you've probably seen um, what what they call, what I think they call because I haven't watched a football game in a long time, um, like an official review, right? A play will happen on the field, the referees will make a call, and one of the coaches that the call goes against, we'll throw out, uh, is it a red flag? Does anybody know? Like, what? Yeah, the challenge flag, right, yeah, I think it's red. Uh, They'll throw it out and say, try again, I think you're wrong, right? And so what the referees do is they go to this little booth, right, they stick their head behind the curtain, and in there they have access to all the different camera angles for that play, right? And so they can watch, you know, the the sideline camera, They can watch the camera that's up in the stadium. They can watch the one that's like hanging over the field. If there's a blimp that day, maybe they have access to that one. I don't know if it would be helpful, but they can pull up all these different cameras and like sync up the time so they can see, okay, where was his foot when he had control of the ball? And like, did he get a first down or was he out of bounds? Like, is it a complete catch or was his knee on the ground or whatever the rules of football are? I don't know. Um, The point is, right, they've got all these different angles that they can see to get an accurate picture of what happened. And I think that's what Revelation is. Revelation is looking at one event, right, or one sequence of events, uh, the time between Jesus' first and second coming. And it's looking at all of history, right, after Jesus' first coming, and it's looking at those events. But what it does is it goes through several different perspectives on those events. Uh, The visions of Revelation are not a linear thing, where chapter 1 is Jesus' birth, chapter 22 is his second coming. No, it's different views, different angles on the same set of events. And so we get things like, in a few weeks we'll talk about chapter 12 uh, of Revelation, which is the Christmas story, right? It's it's when Jesus is born and there's a dragon there. So if you're wondering what a dragon is doing in the Bible, it's awesome, by the way. Um, Revelation chapter 12, we'll talk about that. But the point is that Jesus is born in the middle of the book, Right? And the world ends like five times in the book of Revelation. It can't just be a linear thing. And what we'll see as we work through this book is that we get different angles on the same events that give us kind of this fuller picture of what's going on. So Revelation is these seven different kind of visions about what happens, what's going on between Jesus' first and his second comings. Uh, and I think this is a good place to talk a little bit about numbers in the book of Revelation 
There's a lot of numbers that show up in the book of Revelation, and, and some of them have a symbolic meaning in addition to their literal meaning. Um, they kind of give like a symbolic impression at least. And the number seven is one of those, right? Seven is a number for completion, for fullness, right? We're getting the whole picture. Uh, and, and in particular, like heavenly completion, heavenly fullness. And so why seven and why not six or eight? I don't know. Um, God likes seven, apparently. Uh, and in the book of Revelation, we see seven churches and seven angels with seven plagues and seven seals and seven lampstands and seven bowls and trumpets and on and on and on. And whenever we see that number seven, it's talking about completion, right? The whole thing. And so this book itself, kind of the structure of it, is seven visions of what God is doing between Jesus' first and his last coming. And the structure is saying this is the whole story, right? This is the complete picture of what God is up to between Jesus' birth and his return. Right? This is all you need to know to follow me. This is all you need to know to endure Right? Jesus is letting us in to what's happening. Right? He's like, I'm not holding anything back. Here's the full picture. That's how this book is structured. And, and this week and next week, we're looking at the first vision, uh, this, um, this letters to the seven churches uh, that we start off with in Revelation 1 through 3. Um, last week, we ended the vision, or ended the talking about the vision that John has of Jesus walking among the lampstands, Remember, he's got like white hair and bronze feet and there's a sword coming out of his mouth and like it's just kind of terrifying and cool. Um, But we're we're told that he's walking among these seven lampstands that are the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Um, We'll quiz you next week on those names and their pronunciation. uh, So hope you got it. Uh, These are all real churches with real people. And John is instructed to write the book of Revelation to all of them. But also, in chapters 2 and 3, we get these many letters to them. So if you have a Bible open to chapter 2, you can see kind of before verse 1 to the church in Ephesus. Before verse 8 to the church in Smyrna. And 12 to the church in Pergamum. Right? There's a little mini letter to each of these seven churches. But remember what we just said about the number 7. That it signifies completeness. Right? Fullness. So writing to these seven churches, Christ is also instructing John to send this to the church, right? The big C church. Not just, you know, believers then, but, but us, right? This message, this letter isn't just for them, it's for us as well. So yes, the church in Ephesus needs to hear what Jesus has to say to them through John, but, but so do we, right? This is one of the camera angles, and this is the, here's what the church needs to know camera angle, Because what these letters talk about, these mini epistles, are are things that the church will struggle with until Jesus comes again. Things like false teaching, things like sexual immorality, things like oppression and persecution, things like we'll talk about tonight, like lost love. And they talk about virtues to pursue, faithfulness, endurance, love, service, keeping the word. Right? The church doesn't graduate from the need to be faithful. Right? The church doesn't ever get past a point where there's a need for service in the world. So as we look at the, the passage tonight, what is it the Ephesians need to hear to endure in the last days between Jesus' first coming and his second coming? Uh, the first thing I think they need to hear is Jesus' presence. Uh, this is easy to miss. But at the end of chapter 1, we're told that Jesus is standing among the seven lampstands. 
right? And then in verse 2, we get these few simple words right at the beginning. I know your works. Every one of these little mini letters to the churches begins like this, right? There's an introduction of who Christ is and some picture about him, and then the words, I know. I know your works. I know your suffering. I know where you live and how difficult it is to be in the place that you are. I know, I know, I know. And this is not like, like a, a, you know, if you've babysat before, this is not like the parents who have the nanny cam and like they know what you're doing with your kids. It's not a threat, right? It's Jesus looking at them and encouraging them, right? I know your works and that you've endured, right? He's saying good and positive things about them. I think the first thing that the Ephesians need to hear and, and, and the thing that we need to remember is that Jesus knows, right? We look around in our confusion. We look around in our, like, what are we supposed to do? And sometimes we can be tempted to think that, that God's not paying attention, that Jesus is distracted, right? Maybe that we're not important enough for him to deal with personally. And, and the repetition in these letters is Jesus saying to each of these churches, and therefore to all the church, I know. I see you. I know. You're not alone. I've not forgotten you. I know. Jesus is present with his church. Every letter starts with the same way. And so we can be encouraged that in the midst of our struggling, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of whatever's going on, even our lost love, God knows and he hasn't abandoned us. Right? Our lost love doesn't mean his love for us is lost. So I think John starts off with that, Jesus wants us to see his presence in the lampstands and hear these words, I know, I see. But he goes on and he encourages them. Verses 2 and 3, he encourages them in some specific things, right? I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. There's a lot of general stuff in there, and, and like we know a lot about the church in Ephesus, but it's, it's hard to tell what specifically John is talking about, but, but look at all the things that, that Jesus sees in them and celebrates. You're enduring patiently. You are bearing up for my name's sake. You are not growing weary. I know not just your works, but your toil, right? You're like your heavy labor. Jesus looks at them and he celebrates them. Do you believe that he does that for you? Like that he looks at you and that he sees something in your life and some devotion that you're giving to him or something about you that he says, yes, this is awesome. Like, good job. Keep going. Or do you only hear the voice of Jesus saying, get it together. Do better. Try harder. Look at what Jesus says to this church and to every other church. And he, he encourages the churches where you're strong. Keep going. I'm so proud of you. Stay faithful. Specifically, there, there's one specific in here that we do know. He says, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. One of the things that Jesus loves about the church in Ephesus is that they know enough to be able to identify false teachers. Whenever you read kind of the later books of the New Testament, like Peter, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Jude, uh, one of the issues that faces the church is false teachers. People who come in and give things that are mostly true, right? Say things about God that, that are mostly true but have a, a subtle twist to it. 
that nullifies the gospel, right? That adds works in, or, or says that Christ only appeared to be human, or Christ really wasn't eternally God, or, or yeah, Jesus is great, but there's this one little tweak, right? There's all kinds of different flavors of false teaching, but it's a, it's a threat for the church, it's one of the tools that Satan uses to pull people away from the truth about God and the good news of the gospel. And what, what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus is that you guys are good at identifying false teachers. What's required for that? Right? How, do you, how do you develop that skill? How do you develop that defense mechanism in the Christian life? Well, in Acts 17, uh, Luke is writing about Paul's missionary journeys. And he writes about two different places that Paul goes to. The first place is Thessalonica. He goes to Thessalonica, and as he usually does, Paul goes to the synagogue, right? That's where he would always start, go to the people who knew the Old Testament, knew some of the history of God's dealings with man, and he would talk about Jesus. And he goes to Thessalonica, goes to the synagogue, starts talking about Jesus, and they're all like, awesome, we believe. Yeah, like, we're, we're still Jewish, but now, like, we believe Jesus the Messiah has come. And that's good news, right? They've, they've become followers of Jesus. They're part of the kingdom. And then Paul picks up and he goes to the next town, a town called Berea. And he does the same thing. He goes to the synagogue, goes to people who are familiar with the Old Testament, and he starts talking to them about Jesus, who's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And they say, cool, interesting, give me just a minute. And they run home and they get their Bibles and examine what Paul has said, right? They, they go home and they get the Old Testament and see, like, is what Paul is saying possible? Is there a chance that this is true? And what Luke says about the Bereans in Acts 17 is that they are more noble than the Thessalonians, right? Both groups end up believing, but what Luke says is that they are more noble because they, they received the word with gladness and they went and examined the scriptures to see if these things were so. One of the good things about Ephesus is their knowledge, right? They know a lot about God. They know a lot about his word. They know some doctrine and some theology and are able to discern true teaching from false teaching. And he celebrates them for that. But there's also a warning that's associated with that in verse 4. Jesus gives a warning to the Ephesians. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Their knowledge and their service, right, because Christ praises them for their service, their works and their toil. He praises them for their knowledge. But there's a lack of heart from them. Notice, Christ does not rebuke them for their knowledge. He says, like, don't worry about knowledge, just love. He says you need both, right? He celebrates their knowledge, and he points out that they have lost their first love. They've abandoned the love they had at first. It's kind of a picture of like, imagine um, if, if I, on my way home from large group tonight, swung by angles and picked up um, some flowers for my wife. And I went home and brought them inside and she was still awake and I gave them to her and she said, oh, thank you so much. Like, why did you give me these? There's a thousand right answers to that question, right? Because I love you, because I was thinking about you, because I know Tuesdays are hard because I'm doing large group stuff all day and you've got the kids on your own. Like, all those. But what if I just said, it's like, well, this is something that husbands are supposed to do for wives, right? Like every once in a while, I'm supposed to bring you flowers, so here's some flowers, right? Like it's the right act, and if I pick flowers that, you know, she likes because I know she likes them, it's, it's an informed act, but if there's not love behind it, it's empty. 
And this is how the Ephesians have become to Christ. Cold and empty and just going through the motions. Right? They're, they're learning all the things. They're doing all the things. But there's no love behind what they're doing. What happened to them? Right? How do we get there? If this resonates with you tonight, if you are, feel like you're going through the motions of the Christian life and you've lost the love that you had at first, what happened? We don't know for sure, right? There's, there's no description of how they got there, but, but they're not the last people to, to grow cold in their walk with God and know things about him and do things for him, but not know him and love him. And so we can guess what might have happened, Right? Uh, the love has gone out of them. Maybe it just feels too familiar, right? The, the pina colada condition, right? We've, just, we've done this for so long, right? I've heard the sermon on the prodigal son and the woman at the well and like Revelation 2 enough. Like I know what you're going to say. And so we just kind of check out, right? Grace has become familiar to us. And so it doesn't wow us anymore. And we stop paying attention. Maybe they started serving two masters, right? Their love went somewhere else. It's no longer on God, it's, it's on something else. Jesus told his disciples, you cannot serve two masters, right? You can't serve both God and money because you'll come to love one and hate the other. And I think a good illustration of this is any sitcom, right? Because at some point there's the trope of the, the guy and his wife are hosting the in-laws, right? Usually his parents, and so here, this, this bumbling man is set in the middle of two masters, right? His wife and his mother. And eventually it comes to a head, right? Whose casserole is better? Who, like, whose opinion is right? Who do you love and who do you hate is the question, right? Because whichever one he supports, the other one is going to be angry with him. But they're sitcoms, and so it's fine in 20 minutes. But like, that's the picture that Jesus holds out to us, is you can't serve two masters, Right? You have to pick one or the other. And, and one of the things we do know about El Ephesus is that it was a wealthy city. And so maybe they just got too attached to, too concerned about material things. Right, Their GPA, the job that they were going to have, how big their dorm room was, having the latest fill in the blank. Right, Maybe they just began to love something else. Maybe for them it was just, you know, it's what they'd done all their lives. Uh, the Ephesian church probably started around 50 A.D., and John is writing like 90 to 95 A.D., so a little bit of simple subtraction. The church is at least 40 years old. So John is probably writing to the children of people that Paul evangelized. And I wonder, for those children, did they ever really embrace Christ, or did they just have really good Sunday school teachers? Right? Like, they grew up in the church, and they heard about God all their lives, but did they confuse knowledge about God for love of God? I wonder if that's the case for you. If you grew up in a believing house with great parents who taught you about the Bible, taught you about Christ and his love for you, and you've just known it all your life, I wonder if you've confused knowledge about God with love for God. Whatever the case, the Ephesians have abandoned the love they had at first. Right? And many of us know what that's like. We feel cold. We feel kind of numb. We feel confused. We, we know that there's supposed to be some like warmth and affection, but we just can't find it in our hearts. Well, thankfully, Jesus doesn't just point out their shortcoming. He points a way forward for them. He does this in verse 5. He gives a remedy. 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Three things. Remember, repent, return. First, remember. Remember from where you have fallen. I think it's beautiful that Jesus says this because he knows us, right? It, it, it shows that he knows that we kind of assume that the way things are are the way that they've always been and the way that they'll always be, right? We kind of believe deep down that things don't change or, or it's easy for us to fall into that pattern, right? This is what depression does it, for those of you who have experienced or struggle with this, right? It's not just this feeling of fatigue or exhaustion or sadness or loneliness now, but an inability to remember a time when it was different and an inability to believe that tomorrow could possibly be different at all. But Jesus calls us to remember. Think back to what you used to have. Uh, when I was in seminary, um, a couple years into it, I was writing. Um, we, we had gone to visit a Greek Orthodox church in Charlotte, which was really cool, really beautiful, um, and just like sensory overload. Uh, and we were driving back to seminary, uh, and I was riding with a guy that I had gotten to know over the past couple years, and we were friends. Uh, and he was, I asked him just like how stuff was going, uh, and he started talking about some difficulty that he was having in his marriage. Um, there wasn't like any big sin or anything like that. It was like, it was a pina colada situation, right? Where there's just familiarity and some difficult stuff had happened in their family recently, and it was causing stress between them. And he was just kind of down about like, you know, he, he, was, he was relieved to be done with seminary for the day, but he wasn't really excited to go home because like, he's just going to walk into conflict and, and that's hard to do. And for some reason, because this is not generally, at least then, was not my MO, I just started asking him questions. Like, how did you and your wife meet? Were you in school together? Did you meet, like, later in life? Like, how did you guys meet? Like, what was your, like, why did you ask her out on a date to begin with? When did you know that you wanted to marry her? What was your wedding like? And, like, that's not what I do, right? Like, I'm an engineer and an Enneagram 5. Like somebody tells me a problem and I say, here's what you need to do, right? This is how you fix this. But for some reason, the Holy Spirit chose that moment to say like, Andrew, shut up and ask questions. And a couple weeks later, this guy came back to me and I asked like, hey, how are things going? And he was like, it is so much better. And I was like, what changed? And he was like, honestly, our conversation, right? And I was like, it wasn't a conversation. I just asked questions. Um, but he remembered what he loved about his wife. He remembered like asking her, like being nervous and asking her out on a first date. He remembered the feeling of getting married. And, and in remembering what he had, he longed for it again. And Jesus simply invites them and invites us to remember. Remember that hunger that you had for the word? Remember, remember the relief that you felt at the forgiveness of your sins? Remember your eagerness to be with God's people in worship? It's like Jesus is saying, don't you miss that? Right? Just remember is the first step. Step number two, he says, is repent. Right? Verse five, remember from where you've fallen, repent. If something is in the way, give it up. Turn from it and turn back to him. So have you started to believe that you need something other than Christ to make you whole and fulfilled and complete? Has your love gone somewhere else? Repent and turn from it and see the emptiness of it and rest on Christ. Is there some sin in your life that you know is sin and you're unwilling to give up, that you're clinging to, that's driving a wedge between you and God? Repent, give it up, turn from it, and back to him. 
Have you begun to believe the lie that it's on you to maintain your salvation? It's on you to to prove that you're worthy of God's love. So often what happens is we don't experience God's love because we don't think we're worthy of it. And so we, we work ourselves into a frenzy and there's no rest. Repent. Repent of your pride of believing that you could ever do anything to earn God's love for you. He loves you because he loves you. Jesus says, whatever it is, give it up, let it go, turn back to me, and return. Return to the works that you did at first. We're not told explicitly what these is, but I I don't think it's hard to guess, right? Because what happens when you become a believer? What are you obsessed with, right? Jesus and his words. You pray all the time. You read the Bible as much as you can because you're just hungry to know him, right? You talk about him with your friends who believe and who don't believe, and you can't wait to be with his people, right? What are those things? What were the things that we gave ourselves to when we first tasted of God's love and goodness and grace? Worship with his people, his word, prayer. In other words, Jesus says, return to the things where you, like, where you put yourself in my way. Right? You put yourself in the places where Jesus is going to run into you. You guys know what this looks like because you do it when you're crushing on somebody for the first time. Right? Like, you, you see somebody at large group or at a football game or at a party somewhere, and you're like, they're cute, or they're interesting, or they're funny, or I'm lonely. I'm going to crush on this person. And all of a sudden, like, you just happen to be wherever they are. Right? Like, you know that every Tuesday they eat lunch at this spot after they get out of this class, and, and you just, like, happen to be there every week. Right? Or they come out of their finance class, and you're just, like, sitting on a bench studying. <laughs> and you just happen to be there. Um, By the way, if somebody has shown up in your life and they just happen to be everywhere, hint, hint, they're crushing on you, okay? Um, Like, this is what we do. We put ourselves in people's way so that we run into them. And Jesus says, return, right? Return to putting yourself in my way, right? Go to the places where I've said that I'm going to be. Jesus says, I'm at work in my church. Be there, right? Jesus says, I speak in my word. Listen to me there. Jesus says, you can speak to me in prayer, right? Like that conversation. Go there. Go to the places where you run into Jesus. I love that Jesus, in his compassion on the Ephesians, doesn't look at them and say, you've lost your love. Here's how you can prove that you love me. Or he doesn't say, you've lost your love Try really hard now to, like, stir up that affection in yourself. Get your emotions in order. No. He says, remember. Long for that love again. Repent. My grace is still for you. And return. Come, sit with me. Let's talk again. The end of the Pina Colada song uh, is really beautiful. I mean, like, it's not great that the song's about adultery, but it's sweet at the end. Um, So he takes out this personal ad and, like, responds to the pina colada lady, uh, and he goes to meet this stranger that he's found in the newspaper uh, and says, so I waited with high hopes, and she walked in the place, right? Like, here's the meeting with the strange newspaper lady. I knew her smile in an instant. I knew the curve of her face. It was my own lovely lady, and she said, oh, it's you. And then we laughed for a moment and said, I never knew that you like pina coladas. Um, Really catchy weird that it's about adultery, but beautiful in the end anyway, right? Because they realize that the person they're looking for has been there all along, right? This is is God's love for us, right? Our coolness towards him does not mean his coolness towards us. 
right? Our losing or abandoning the love that we had at first does not mean that God has changed. It's just an invitation to meet him again. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that so simple? Right? What a picture of the gospel. All we have to do is receive, right? Receive his words, receive the gift of communication with him, receive his people, receive him. And he gives us everything, even himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you for your word. Uh, We confess that it is easy for us to lose and abandon the love that we had at first, to get distracted by the things of this world, to love other things more than you, um, to cling to sin, to to cling to many things, Father. Uh, We pray, Father, for those who are in this room. Um, I think every one of us experienced that at times, but for those who are especially going through that tonight, I pray uh, that they would hear uh, and believe that all they have to do is remember, repent, and return that you're waiting for them, that your grace is new every morning, that your love has not departed from them, even as they've abandoned their love for you. Father, as we do that, help us to see Jesus with open arms welcoming us back, and help us to believe his promise that he says at the end of the letter, that to those who conquer, he will give a right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, sustain us until that day. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.